The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Kia ora and welcome to The Fold. Uh, it's, it's been a minute, it's been, been two or three weeks, uh, during which it's not that I've, I, I've not been trying to, to get a guest on The Fold, I've just had a, a lot of things that are just out of reach. Um, so this week I'm going inside the spin-off newsroom, I'm super excited about it. My guest today is Justin Latif. Uh, who's been with us for about nine months. Uh, Justin, he came to the spinoff in quite an interesting way. We advertised for um, a couple of roles last year and he he basically sent us an application that was not really for either of them. It was essentially pitching a new section and we sort of found, he wrote a one pager describing it, basically uh, the, the position of South Auckland editor and he made such a compelling case that we got him in for an interview and then later hired him for the role. And th- this is a guy who has, uh, for basically his whole career in journalism, been focused on the city of South Auckland, on telling its stories, and and trying to, almost on his own at times, give a different vision of what, what the, the south of the city is to its people and to the rest of Auckland and the country as well. Uh, because South Auckland has, for the longest time, had a pretty poor relationship with the media. It, it has been, you know, there's that notorious thing of, when there is um, a good story out of South Auckland, it's an Auckland story. When there's a bad story, it's a South Auckland story. And um, you know, the media has been extremely complicit in that and in, in, in propagating some of the myths about the city and its people. Justin has has always resisted that, has always seen the city for all its um, brilliant complexity and, and told stories of that nature. He's done that at Fairfax, you know, later stuff. He's also worked comside and is that rare journalist who's, who's gone, um, worked for comms and for council and child poverty action group and the time of regeneration project and so on, but also come back to journalism. And just recently, his role has changed somewhat and that he's been recruited into the local democracy reporting uh, pilot scheme, which, you know, I think is, a, is an interesting experiment and one which in some respects is going to be very massively expanded by government in the next few years. So we'll speak about that as well. As always, I want to say a huge thanks to Vodafone. Uh, the fold is made possible, would not happen without Vodafone. Vodafone bring you innovation made simple and world-class network technology and will help you maximise the potential of you and your business. Find out more at vodafone.co.nz. Now let's speak to Justin. Kia ora, Justin, and welcome to The Fold. Kia ora, thanks for having me. 
Uh, no, thank you, thank you for coming. Um, I wonder if we could start right at the start of your journalistic career and just tell me what what drew you into to journalism in the first place. Uh, it's probably a, a different story to most. I was doing a PE degree in Dunedin, and I've always sort of saw the media as, for whatever reason, something that wasn't maybe for me or something. I, I, I read a lot of news and grew up consuming a lot of media but didn't think I could ever have a place in it. And then I did a personality test and saw that one of the ideal careers was journalist. So I literally en- enrolled in journalism school and uh, moved to Auckland off the back of that and well, really enjoyed it. So I just kind of kept going with it. Why, why do you think that, that you you made that assumption about the career? Because I, I think it probably is a lot of people who would make fantastic journalists also make a similar assumption. So I think it's worth teasing out. Yeah, I, I think probably a range of things. I, the sense of um, maybe, sounds cheesy, but not seeing a lot of other um, people like me in the media um, as a Fijian Indian or part Fijian Indian, but also maybe just not feeling like I was um, confident enough or, or, or good enough at certain parts, you know, writing or... Yeah, and I, I guess I had actually aspirations to become a professional cricketer and two knee injuries and probably not being good enough <laughs> put paid to that. But that was my initial plans out of high school. Um, and it's quite embarrassing admitting that. No, but luckily cool it's just you listening, no one else is going to hear this. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, but that means so I probably was just a slightly confused um, teenager, not quite sure what I'd do with my life, and professional sports seemed like a good option. Where did you grow up? Um, in Onihanga. And, well, I actually was born in Fiji, and then we came after the 1987 coup uh, and then lived around Auckland and then settled in Onihanga. Um, when we were sort of in primary school, late primary school, yeah. So in terms of that, the I mean, and between the, the finding journalism, maybe not, not immediately, but eventually, and and where you grew up, that, that's kind of become the locus of, the, of, of your journalism. What, what is it about South Auckland that you've found so compelling to kind of essentially dedicate your career to it as a subject? Yeah, I mean, again, it was... Almost by accident, uh, I mean, I think I was an average journalist when I started out. I, didn't, I wasn't like one of those young guns at AUT that who seemed like they're born for the role and they've already got five Voyager-worthy pieces <laughs> straight out of... I, I, you know, I went into a community newspaper and and I probably was just an average journalist and... What happened is I guess I got through writing stories about people doing social issues, got more interested in that side of things, um, and then our friend needed someone to help her run a foster care home in Mangere, and my wife got a job at Mangere College. Um, and so those two things led us to move to Mangere, and and then I guess by living in the area and seeing the issues and really enjoying being part of the community, that's where my kind of it probably sharpened my focus and probably helped me, yeah, become a bit more um, focused in my journalism as well and and in my desire to actually follow through on stories and be a bit more um, hard-nosed or, or about trying to get to the bottom of things. So that is probably actually what 
yeah, helped me then like decide to dedicate my kind of career towards South Auckland. And what, which publications were you working for in those in those early years? So I was at the Western Leader, and then I moved into like a web editor's role at Stuff. And it was actually around that time I then quit journalism. I had this funny conversation with Sinead Boucher when she was the head of Stuff, um, this, the digital arm, where she asked me, she was about to launch Auckland Now, I think it was called, and um, they were looking for journalists to, to fill some of those roles. And she asked me, well, what's your ideal role if, if Auckland Now was to start next week and I at that point was quite disillusioned with being a web editor and I said I want to do community development and she just looked at me like what is that <laughs> <laughs> and I actually quit stuff pretty soon after that and um, went and did a whole bunch of weird roles like a, um, worked for the Salvation Army's policy organisation doing event management I um, worked for a community law centre, um, basically helping people with their tenancy issues, and and if they got ripped off by Harvey Norman or something, that was one of my things was to help them get their money back. So I, I kind of left journalism in many ways, and then my old editor, at the Western Leader, had sort of risen through the ranks at Fairfax, and he needed um, someone to take over the Manuka Courier, and he just rang me up one day. Um, and said, oh, would you be interested in an interview? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then my wife um, and I realised that well, she was about to have her second child, our second child, and, um, yeah, so I was like, actually, I do need a better job than a community um, j- uh, law centre kind of worker, something that pays the bills. So, um, yeah, I took up that job and then have kind of gone back into journalism since then. Well, what was it that, that made you disillusioned about it in the first place to the point of of backing out of it? I mean, I think the change to digital from being a community newspaper reporter and just the newspaper industry is quite a fun environment where you're in a newsroom and you're, you see your product come out in a newspaper. Um, it's very interactive with the readers. And to move to digital, everything... So much of my work at Stuff at the time was just going through international newspapers or websites. Yeah, so I was on the world section and the sports section. And so a lot of it was just, it felt like I was rehashing and just copy. And it didn't really feel like real journalism. Uh, I wasn't going out. I was just in the newsroom um, and doing a lot of sub-editing. And I mean, that I that is definitely part of the media industry. But I just that for me felt kind of... Soulless. I mean, I was also working a 6pm to 3am shift, which was pretty intense. <laughs> so that also sucked the life out of me a bit. Yeah, I, I can understand that. So so when you returned to, to the Manukau Courier, what what did you find? What what was the state of it, um, both the kind of the newsroom operation, its relationship to the community, and the sort of, I guess, the financial element of it and, and the way that it kind of related to the rest of stuff because those community newspapers now in some ways and this isn't a fair characterization feel a little bit kind of quaint but at, at various times for a long time they they you know certainly it was probably one of the main newspapers or one of the only newspapers that was focused on South Auckland. I think Manica Courier and probably a couple of the other papers in Auckland were actually financially doing really well because small businesses still 
saw them as the main form of advertising. And, and someone even told me that the, the profit margins from um, the Manaka Courier were, were providing quite large dividends back to the company. Um, but I guess it, it, in the long term you could see they weren't going to work because eventually everyone's moving to Facebook and Google. Was, and, and in terms of the journalism, I think, you know, the problem with the community papers is that it's quite easy to fall into like um, quite tired and template type journalism where you just do the same thing every year and slightly change the intro and the, the characters, but it's sort of the same stories over and over again. And that's that's not a criticism of the journalists. It's just how the, uh, the nature of community newspapers, it's a free paper and you, you're often allowed to you know, lessen your your push to really get those quality stories. And also the, the format's quite limiting, it's quite short. Yeah, and so I guess we tried lots of things, but it's it is a limiting format. So, so, so when you came back, did you did you enjoy having that, a greater sense of ownership? Yeah, of I mean, and that's probably one thing I would say is I came back, and the thing I enjoyed the most was actually we had a, the group of people you know who ranged between twenty and sixty, and yeah, just having this newsroom kind of at my fingertips and this group of people who are all from really different backgrounds and getting them to and I have a real passion about South Auckland and actually a lot of them weren't didn't necessarily live in South Auckland or, or hadn't were new to South Auckland so it was actually like getting them to kind of take hold of that passion in the same way I loved the area and um, it was a yeah it, in many ways it was it was a, a big highlight of my life was that period of being the editor for that paper because it was um yeah we, I felt like we really did um dig get really deep into the community and 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 it was quite exciting and there was lots of cool stories the emergence of the protests out at Ihimatao and um different things like that were happening and so it was quite a yeah it was quite fun and but particularly just having a newsroom a team and that was one thing digital sort of when you're in a digital space like it's stuff where you're on shifts and you don't always get that same sense of a core team and it and it just depends which part of the business you're in but that was quite cool so why why did you eventually because you you did that job for a while and then then went back to comms side again what what prompted that um it's probably more family i just it was quite a demanding job i mean the nature of the community newspaper the way we were run as we were our own subs we were doing our own production and it, you know I was working say from 8 till midnight 8am till midnight most days and then at least one of the weekend days for yeah, 18 months it was just intense it's unsurvivable, and really. we had you know two kids under three and and they yeah weren't very good at sleeping so <laughs> I just used to feel like I was living off three hours sleep Two or three hours sleep some some weeks, yeah. And it just I maybe I was putting too much into it, but I I couldn't sustain that level of work. And yeah, it's not a criticism of anyone else other than my own pressure I put on myself. So I just and I could also see, to be honest, that we the the company was starting to wanting to um, I guess divest itself from having so many journalists dedicated to papers around, and and you know obviously they did make people redundant within a year of my leaving so I, the writing was kind of on the wall well what do you think is lost when um when journalists sort of shrink away from the 
that places like the Monaco Courier and and yeah, there's this concept of news deserts where there are kind of big population hubs in New Zealand that actually have very few journalists kind of trained on the city. In some ways, that's what the the LDR scheme, which we'll get to, uh, is meant to to start to tap back out. But but how how do you do you see like a a, a community that lacks for uh, journalism and journalists, um, what happens there? Yeah, and I, I mean, it happens in South Auckland, but it actually happens everywhere where the readers or the, the people on the street lose their connection to um, the people who are giving them information. And I mean, even now in a role that I have now, which is really great, I'm not, um, I'm one person and there's not many others like me. And it's very hard for people on the street to actually know who I am and and share their concerns with me. Um, whereas when we were the Manuka Courier, there was six of us. We were we were based right in the heart of South Auckland. We would get a lot of our stories from just talking to people at lunch bars or cafes. Um, but now, because where I'm stretched across a whole region, as is um, the, some of the other South Auckland journalists, we could we we have to use things like agendas and committee meetings and go to and and try and talk try and look like get shortcuts to work out what the the key issues are but we don't it's much harder to get that really um raw um kind of opinion and 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 then I think what you do see is that we are being replaced by Facebook community pages where people um who don't who haven't been trained in how to filter news and how to filter information are um yeah, able to control the narrative on a Facebook page, and um, you know they do their best, but often at times they create more harm than good. I think it's quite interesting the way that Facebook first took the sort of economic foundation of uh, community news, and then ultimately replaced it with a far inferior product in some ways. Yeah, and I mean, what is good about the Facebook pages is that. People do, um, I think, get a lot of their news and it's right from the people making the news. Um, so if you have a bunch of um, people driving dangerously around the streets of Mungary Bridge, those same people driving dangerously might even comment about the people complaining about them. Um, so you get that and that you don't see that. But what happens is it, it just turns into fighting and um, you know, this sort of vitriol and gets all toxic. And then it doesn't really get down to what are the issues causing things. And that's really what journalists are good at doing is drilling down and, and distilling what's the real thing. And so I guess Facebook has removed that layer unintentionally probably, but it's um, probably not great for all of us in a sense. So... You came to the the spin-off, you made that amazing pitch for for a role that we weren't advertising for and um and then basically immediately landed into not only the pandemic but but very quickly the 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 sort of second lockdown and outbreak was was located in South Auckland. What was it like to to cover the community during that period of immense um stress and strain and and probably a level of national scrutiny that it hadn't had? In, in a while in terms of the, in that style, I suppose. I think I found it quite overwhelming on a personal level, just feeling like I've really got to try and be accurate and, and make sure I reflect 
what everyone's thinking. But it's also really hard when you're talking about 400,000 people and and every suburb is unique in some ways. Um, and so just feeling the pressure of like thinking I'm never going to quite nail this. Um, and just learning how to be okay with actually not nailing it, I guess, has been probably part of my learning. But that's often the pressure is that feeling like I get this privilege of, of this platform and I get to talk to a lot of people from my platform through and sharing other people's stories, but I'm never going to quite do it justice, always feeling like that. And so that's, yeah, juggling that tension, I guess. From my perspective, you, it felt like you threw yourself into that work and, and the, you know you saw that reflected in the way... There was just a different tenor to your coverage, I think. There's, there seems to be something that's from the community rather than about the community in some respects in terms of the way that you approach your coverage. Yeah, and I think one probably principle that I have kind of brought to my journalism, which is something I've learnt over time, is this idea of um, asset-based or constructive journalism, of trying to not just um, offer both sides of the story, but actually try and write stories that offer to show strength and also to show solutions. And so that sometimes means you highlight or accentuate certain aspects over just just giving a really basic um, surface level um, perspective on a, on a situation. So sometimes that takes a bit longer, but it, I think it's a, 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 I enjoy that approach more. It feels like a bit more meaningful than just he said, she said type um, reporting. With the city of South Auckland, because there has been historically like a, a sense of media either not being there or being most excited when there was a, a negative story about the city. What? what and again, it, as you say, we're, we're talking about 400,000 people and myriad different communities, um, both geographical and, um, you know, identity-based. But if you were to try and sum it up, how would you, what would you say the kind of relationship with the, the, me, the mainstream media has been uh, historically and, and is now? I think the the general um, impression or vibe that South Aucklanders have is that they are um, reported at or reported about. Um, and, it, it, yeah, there's definitely a frustration that, you know, the most negative aspects of South Auckland are focused on. But, I mean, I think sometimes people want a more Pollyanna approach to what gets reported in South Auckland, which is also not helpful. Um, but, I, you know, no, I think there is lots of good examples of journalism, really, in the mainstream media, which does a really great job of reporting on South Auckland, and there has been a shift there. But the, I guess the fact that there's a lot of crime reporting, and, and I know from working at other places and stuff that if you put the word South Auckland into a headline on a car crash story, it would click a lot better than Central Auckland car crash. And so often we would try and find ways to include other parts of fringe parts of South Auckland <laughs> into a story like Onihanga is not really known as South Auckland, but if something bad happened in Onihanga, um, I know that I mean, we wouldn't do this, but I've seen other media do this where they would suddenly include only hunger as part of South Auckland if there was a, a negative spin. And then that's partly because it's driven by knowing that people are like to 
um, pick over the carcass of a, of a problem in South Auckland's a, an easy target. In your time, do you think that that mainstream of journalism has developed more of a kind of a, a consciousness about that kind of thing rather than that sort of fatalistic, well, if it bleeds, it leads kind of uh, Oh, yeah. Approach? I think you definitely, I mean, COVID probably um, saw the, the, the evolution of a lot of our media and, and we've seen over time, I think. And it's possibly also just the evolution of our politics. Uh, we're, we're in a progressive season in New Zealand and so the media reflects that a little bit more as well. So, I, yeah, I think it's it's a lot of factors, but it it definitely seems to be a change um, across the board. So recently your role shifted somewhat, though you remain part of the, the spin-off newsroom and, and a very valued one, but um, you've become incorporated into the local democracy reporting scheme. Um, which is sort of administered by RNZ, funded by New Zealand On Air. And the intention is to sort of address some gaps in where, the, where, where it was perceived that reporting had, had gone away from. Obviously, it's relatively early, but what are your sort of experiences of it? And do you think that it's a scalable model and that were it to be scaled, that it would solve some of these kind of long-running um, news desert type issues that, that we're starting to see in the post-social media era? Yeah, I think it is a really, obviously I think it's a great scheme because it's helping to pay my uh, salary. But um, it's also, I mean, I think it's enabling a whole bunch of journalists and a whole bunch of communities to have um, their stories heard. So that that seems like a no-brainer. I mean, I also think, and I, I like to think that every community has national stories of national interest um, and so if you've got journalists in those places it actually and it benefits us all you know uh, things like Pike River don't happen in isolation but um, suddenly a whole national media converge on a place like in the west coast but that story was bubbling away well before the um, you know the issues that led to that terrible accident. And I'm just using it as an example mm. of a place which now has a LDR reporter and hopefully in time some of the um, s- sort of issues that lead to you know that sort of accident would be um, on the radar a lot sooner. Um, and so that's why it's important to have journalists in all sorts of places in New Zealand because um, these little places actually are have big things happening there and so, so it's good to have people on the ground one story which you know I felt like was a bit ahead of the curve in terms of the way that housing and renting has become such a national obsession was was your piece about the incredible rental price inflation and just lack of of rentals in South Auckland, which had a huge you know number of views nationally and and within the region. What what do you think it was about that story that that took off, and is that sort of an example of the way you can see? The whole country's issues through the through a particular community. Yeah, I mean, it's, I haven't reflected on that piece. I, I guess I thought the graphic was particularly good, <laughs> and so sometimes I think a good graphic or good picture often helps with a story. Shout and out the, to Tina Teller. <laughs> yeah, and a good headline. So shout out to Alice and Catherine and Toby. Um, so I think, I mean, that's. 
I mean, and I think anyone who um, knows what it's like to find a rental and all the things they take into consideration do find it shocking that you would pay the same or even more in South Auckland given that the, you know, the schooling and, and different things, the amenities in the area aren't always as good as Central Auckland. Um, yeah, so I guess it's a, it, it seems like quite a simple story on one level, but and that's all really what I do is just sort of put, hopefully just highlight things that are actually quite simple but just aren't always being um, expressed. And what what are some other stories which which are kind of stuck with you, or you, or you feel particularly impactful, or, or you're, that you're proud of over the past six months or so? Uh, I think you know one thing. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a South Auckland story, but just there was a lot all that bullying and harassing of online of of, of people from South Auckland following this, the August um, outbreak, and it was just I found quite yeah. Um, enjoyable talking to the artists and and the some you know community you know youth workers and things who were trying to push back against some of their online bullying and yeah it seemed like that really brought a lot of pride to people um, locally seeing the way that they were able to sort of speak up for themselves and and in, uh, through different ways through their through art or through poetry and and that yeah I mean and that that sort of thing you like to give people a chance to to share their strength and share their positives and and it's and then probably another good example of that is I spent you know quite a bit of time talking to Kiani um, Matatasipu who who led the Protect Ihumatau campaign and it took quite a long time um, organising and just getting that story and and but yeah I felt like it was quite cool just unpacking the story of Ihumatau with her and how it had really started with her great-great-grandparents and she was just carrying on that legacy, you know. And, I mean, that story definitely didn't seem to... It wasn't a, a click banger, but it um, felt like an important story that was worth telling, even though it maybe didn't get as read as other stories. I think that's one of the plagues of this age is the... I don't think it's unavoidable, but it feels that urge to sort of judge a, a story's consequence by the number of page views it gets. They're not the same thing. And uh, I mean the spin-off, but also I mean all of journalism needs to get better at having a more textured evaluation of, of, of a story's power. Just before we go, the, a story that you've got coming shortly is, is much more of a passion. No, not a passion project, because your whole work is a passion project, but doesn't seem quite so directly related to to your day job but I'm but I'm uh, excited to read it nonetheless it's a, it's a, to do with NRL franchises and, and and ranking them definitively do you want to give us a sense of what your relationship to to the to the NRL and what's driven you to well I mean one thing growing up in Onihanga the Warriors was my were my local sports team I literally could walk from my house and we used to sneak in for a, a gap in the fence and go and watch them for free when they had no security because no one was going to watch them anyway. What, what era are we talking about? This is like the, the mid-90s. And I think it was sort of the the late 90s when basically they were perennially um, out of the top eight. It was like before Daniel Anderson. Yeah, they were like yeah. Pretty yeah, ropey. Yeah, they were. Was that English? What was that, that coach? 
Well, it was after the sort of Dennis Betts, John Money era. Yeah, it was right. where they had like probably three different owners in five years, and it was a very depressing. But we, it was just a great time because we could just go in and watch like the best rugby league players. <laughs> just beating um, the hell out of the whole yeah. everyone. And that was part of the appeal. But I mean, I formed like a kind of a, a close affection for them. And I like that idea of the, you know, like the soccer or the football thing in the British culture where you just follow a team regardless. And so I, I have a love for the Warriors. I've been a member through lots of up, well, mostly downs, but some ups. Um, <laughs> and so I guess I follow the NRL. And I mean, I'm, I didn't grow up playing rugby league. I'm a skinny Indian. So I, I, that's probably why I'm still alive, is I didn't play any rugby league growing up. But um, I just have an affection for rugby league in general. It's like this great sport where you get these, you know, people from really working class and but diverse backgrounds, and they come together and and it also throws up some crazy storylines. And the, the I mean, rugby league yeah. scandals are just <laughs> orders of magnitude different and <laughs> yeah. often funnier, sometimes more tragic than those in other sports for some reason. Yeah, if it was just a fictional home and away type thing, it would be funny. I guess it's sad when a lot of these obviously are real people's tragic lives um, and they all get played out through the tabloid media in Australia. But it, it's entertaining. It's a form of real life reality tv <laughs> i enjoy it and uh, yeah it's a little side thing it's certainly not part of my role <laughs> as an ldr reporter but um someone i randomly suggested a, a ranking of the nrl scandals and their teams and stupidly people agreed for me to do it so hopefully it doesn't bore people it's about two thousand words long so <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's just scratching the surface of NRL scandals. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on The Fold, Justin. Uh, if you're listening, you should really check out his work on the spin-off. It covers South Auckland with a not sentimentality, but certainly a level of compassion that isn't always found. And the stories he brings up, are, I think, are consistently very well reported and affectingly told. Kia ora e te iwi. Te ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.